Well, it's good to be with you today. Welcome to our, our service. Let me add my welcome as well. My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a question just as we start our, our sermon today. Uh, what were you like when you were 12 years old? What were you like when you were 12 years old? Perhaps you can uh, go back in your memory to that. I just started high school. I had quite bad glasses, uh, bad hair, certainly I had curtains, and um, I, I looked a little awkward if um, photos are anything to go by. Well, you might think, not much has changed, Lloyd, but um, I'll, I'll leave it with you to decide. Uh, well, I want to look today at um, the boy Jesus today, from Luke chapter 2. You'll have heard those verses read um, already. It sounds like a strange thing to say, looking at the boy Jesus, right? We have a category in our heads about baby Jesus, don't we? Um, and even though we recognise it's a bit strange, the Christmas card and the nativity scenes kind of normalise it a little bit. We also have a category, I think, for adult Jesus. We've seen art depictions of adult Jesus. And though it often is rather too Hollywood and too uh, Caucasian uh, for my sensibilities, for it to be true to life, uh, we have that category. But what about the boy Jesus, 12 years old? There's not a lot said about him at that age. And, and what is said um, is said here in Luke chapter 2. So we've decided to dwell on it a little bit and not to skate past uh, some of these verses that speak of the boy Jesus. So let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that today you would speak to us uh, by your Spirit, about your Son, that we'd be changed, that we would um, know you more and serve you more with all of ourselves and body, mind, and soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the boy Jesus we're looking at today, and we're looking at a doctrine called the incarnation, the infleshing or becoming flesh of, of God. The incarnation, God becoming human, God becoming man. It's the incarnation which splits history in two. To begin, let's look briefly at what led to the incarnation in the Bible, what happened BC, and then we're going to briefly look at what happened after the incarnation in the history of the church, what happened in AD, in the years of our Lord. In the earliest chapters of the Bible, we see a creation that was made good, and a humanity that was not just good, but was called very good. God had said, after all, let us make mankind in our image. But we soon uh, see that it was through the first Adam that creation had fallen, that man had fallen, turning from being face to face with God to turning away from him in rejection. Humanity no longer mirrored the image, it actually marred it. They turned from eternal things to things corruptible and caused the beginning of their own corruption and decay. Sin and death had entered the picture. But God had a plan that we see in the shadows of the Old Testament. The saviour and redeemer of mankind and the defeater of evil was to be the seed of a woman. So in Genesis 3.15 it says that it is the offspring of the woman who would do this. 
this promise, seed of the woman, becomes a thread that gets traced throughout the Old Testament through Abraham, Israel, David, the kings, the prophets, the Psalms, the waiting, the silence, the anticipation. When was it going to come? What was going to come? What was it going to look like? The incarnation comes into this situation and we see this tension in Luke chapters 1 and 2. On the one hand, there is grandness and flashing lights to Mary, to the shepherds, through the angels, to Simeon, to Anna. Mary, who is a virgin, is told, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be great and the son of the most high kingdom will have no end. He's going to be the son of God. The angels tell the shepherds, good news of great joy for all people. A saviour is born today in Bethlehem. Go and see. Old Simeon holds Jesus and says, my eyes have seen God's salvation. But mixed in with all these special and, and crazy proclamations about the promised Messiah and Saviour, we have little bits of commentary from Luke just dotted in chapter 2, showing us really how humble it actually was. So verses 6 to 7, And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Verse 21, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. Finally, 50 to 52. And Mary and Joseph did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. There's a tension here, can you see, and a juxtaposition. Angel announcements and a, and a manger birth. My eyes have seen your salvation, God. I can die now. Versus holding a little baby for whom only a couple of turtle doves were offered as a sacrifice, the minimum considered acceptable. Debating with teachers of the law at 12 years old. Versus growing up and becoming strong, increasing in wisdom and stature, being submissive to his parents. What's going on? That's the question. How do we understand this? How do we uh, draw them together? Well, thankfully, we don't have to come up with the answer ourselves. The church has formulated creeds and confessions from the earliest days. Creed is from the Latin credo, which means I believe, and allows people to say I believe together, using fixed, chosen words which have been wrestled with and authorised by the church. So, for example, I believe, and the church has always believed in God, the Father Almighty, for example. Now, I've, I've struggled uh, with these sort of things in the past. We've got a Bible, so, so what do we need creeds and confessions for? Other people say, I experience God personally and directly. How, why do I need uh, creeds or theology? As a young Christian, I found uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis helpful in many ways. 
but particularly when he described um, theology as a map. Let me read you a quote from Mere Christianity. Now, theology is like a map. Merely learning and thinking about the Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than Christian experience. Doctrines are not God. They are only a kind of map. But that map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God. Experiences compared with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have lots of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. End quote. There is a tension that we see here in Jesus' incarnation. Where do we go with it? The little that we have of Jesus' childhood brings us a challenge, doesn't it? What we have here in Luke is all we have in the Gospels about his childhood. So in the other Gospels, we go, um, some of them from a supernatural birth into a supernatural ministry. So it's quite understandable that some see him as some kind of super Superman, superhuman person. Maybe he just seemed human, but was actually mostly just divine. Or at least he was some kind of mishmash or hybrid of, of human and divine that kind of worked. But let me suggest that the sparseness of information that, that we get on his childhood um, could also go in another direction, should go in another direction, i.e. that it speaks of how ordinary and plainly human it was. That these moments we have with angels and random older people, debates in the temple, were exceptions in a childhood of learning obedience, listening to parents growing up and learning. Those were the noteworthy things that, that weren't um, written down. You see, most of the time as Christians, we are defending the, the divinity of Jesus, and rightly so. It's like the whole New Testament just assumes that he is God, but does so implicitly, almost in each paragraph, rather than in explicit statements. So it does need spelling out to friends, to family, to inquirers, to, to those um, who we know. I want to make sure that as we do that, we also realise that the humanity of Jesus needs affirming and believing too. He might have been God, but he was fully human too. That's what the creeds affirm that within God there is one nature, but several persons. One nature, several persons. This is the Trinity. One God in three persons. Or as I've heard it described recently, one what and three who's. One what and three who's. One what, God, and three who's. Father, Son, and Spirit. And incarnation means that despite being God, the Son, becomes God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, the formulation was this. We then confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, 
truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, uh, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. It's a bit of a mouthful. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the one and only God-man. Now, God-man is, I realise, a bit of an awkward description, God-man. It sounds like a badly named Marvel spin-off that didn't quite make, uh, get through the, the writing process, but somehow Ant-man did, I, I, I don't know. But he is the God-man, because he is fully God and he is fully man. This is the incarnation. So what does that mean for, for, for us? Lloyd, where, where are you going to go with this? How does this apply to us now? Well, two things salvation and revelation. Incarnation means for us revelation and salvation, a different kind of IRS. Incarnation means revelation and salvation. Let me talk about salvation first of all. The Nicene Creed says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He became incarnate and was made human for us and for our salvation. He is the plan to save. Jesus Christ is the plan. Jesus Christ is a God-man, and because he is fully man, he is fully able to save us. You see, only if he is fully human can he fully represent us, fully renew us, fully undo what the first Adam did by becoming a second Adam for us. Jesus comes to reverse the divine judgment and decay that Adam's initial sin brought into the world, but not just to bring us back to, to square one, but to undo what Adam had done and to restore us and the world to God's own purposes. Only he could do it. Let me give an illustration of this. Imagine that you come into some money, you decide with the money, um, you decide to be quite cultured. Uh, so you commission a painting of a loved one, a dear loved one. And it turns out amazing, it's done by someone famous. Art was not your thing, but now this piece is the most precious thing that you have. But someone steals the painting when you're off spending your money somewhere and you are devastated. The police come one day out of the blue and the officer has good news. We've caught the culprit. But you've not much interest in the culprit. That's important. But you say, I want the, the painting of, of, of my son, my loved one back. It's, it's more than one in a million. It's priceless. It's a picture of my son. He's my image. It's found, the painting. You're happy, but it's damaged. What do you do? Well, you don't throw it out. You get the subject of the portrait to come and sit down for it again. And the likeness is redrawn on the same material. And so it's to be with us and our broken world. The image of God has been distorted, stained, almost unrecognisable. Only one perfectly in the image of God can, can mean that this image is saved. But only one who is fully human could sit in our place to be redrawn. The image of the Father came and dwelt in our midst. 
in order that he might save and renew us and to remake us in God's image again. And the wonder of the incarnation is that the Son of God takes on our, our human nature, assumes our human nature, that God himself does for us and in our flesh what none of us is able to do ourselves and does it in a way that saves all those who come to God through him. The incarnation means that salvation is possible. And not only is it possible, it is comprehensive. It really does save all of us. Let me take you back to a debate in the fourth century. A guy called Apollinarius was suggesting that in the incarnation, Christ didn't have a human soul, but instead that um, something supernatural was taking, uh, that took place in, in the mind and the soul of the God-man reality. Gregory Nazianzus, um, called one of the Cappadocian fathers, said this of Jesus' incarnation, a maxim he gave, that the unassumed is unhealed. The unassumed is unhealed. Basically, Gregory was making the case that for salvation, Jesus has to assume and take to himself all that we are to take it through death and into resurrection life. That if he didn't take a human soul, then the human soul isn't healed or saved, only the body. That's why it's so important to dwell on the boy, Jesus. It's remarkable that he grew, that he had to learn, that he increased in wisdom and stature before God and men. But it's not only remarkable, it's critical. It's not only remarkable, it's critical because it shows that he can save us, all of us. Not just our bodies or our minds and not just our souls. Not just the healthy bits, not just the bits that work or that we're proud of, the naturally strong parts of us. No, all of us. He's able to save us body, mind and soul because he is fully, fully human. He was the boy Jesus who grew. Isn't this attention to detail staggering? The scope of salvation awe-inspiring? The commitment to us and to saving us mind-blowing? You can trust the God-man Jesus Christ. You can trust him. You can trust his ability to save. I wonder what part of your humanity, of your life, are you holding off from bringing to him because you think, well, you won't want anything to do with that. That's unseemly, that's ungainly. I'm, I'm ashamed of that. I don't need to bring that to him. Will you come and see today that he's able to save all of us? Will you trust him for your salvation? Will you trust him that only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can take it all because he was the God-man. Incarnation means full salvation. Incarnation also means revelation. The incarnation reveals to us what God is like. I said previously that Jesus Christ is the God-man and because he is fully man, he's able to fully save us. Now, because Jesus is the God-man and because he is fully God, he reveals God to us. Even the boy Jesus? Yes. Yes. Admittedly, angels sung his birth, but the infant Jesus had to learn how to form the first word in his mouth. Like Emmy Dant, who was baptised this last week, will have to do. His wisdom and questions staggered the teachers in the temple, yes, 
He also went back home to do his chores. Like my nephew Ben, who's 12. He grew in wisdom and stature before God and people. He needed to grow in these areas, spiritually, physically, socially. Now, what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about what he's like? The boy Jesus shows that when God takes on humanity fully, he shows divine humility utterly. When God takes on humanity fully, he shows divine humility totally and utterly. In Philippians 2, in that great Christ hymn, it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And so in emptying, he takes on humanity and becomes a servant. He doesn't subtract his godness. Instead, he takes on our humanness. Now imagine uh, a great and glorious kingdom that is ruled by a strong and wealthy king who has everything. One day as the king was taken out on a short journey to another part of um, the royal city, he passes an area he had not seen before. He sees the downtown east side there. On his return to the palace, he thought to himself, I wonder what it is like to live life there as a beggar, as an addict, as someone in poverty. And he could not remove this question from his mind. And so with a determination to find out just what such a life is like, he decided to move out of the royal palace and onto some of the impoverished streets of his city. In every way that he could, he acquired the day-to-day -day life and limitations of a beggar. Through hunger, illness, insult and rejection, he could have returned or sought the privilege he once had in the palace, but he refused to do so. He chose to reject his rights and privileges as king to truly understand what it meant to be a beggar in, in that city. The point is this, the king cannot live according to all the rights and privileges he knows as king while um, also living life genuinely and authentically as a beggar. Jesus Christ is like this king turned beggar for us. It shows the depth of his desire for us. It shows the depth of what he would go to to take on all of our humanness. Though he retained full deity, it could not be expressed because he had taken on human nature. Now this is a remarkable humility. It's not just remarkable though, it's, it's crucial. There is much to fear about raw power. We are often impressed by it, but we also struggle to trust it. We're a little suspicious of it. What if it flies off the handle? What if it goes out of control? But what we see in incarnation is divine humility, a power that can be trusted. Many fear that Jesus is a, a kind of facade for God that he's nice and cuddly, but behind the mask of Jesus, there is something to be deeply suspicious of. There is no, I'm here to say and to reassure us, to try and convince us that there is no godness behind Jesus that will come and shock you. There will be no bait and switch where it said, aha, you love Jesus, now, we're gonna, now you're going to be stuck with a tyrant God who is hidden behind him. <laughs> no, thank God there's going to be none of this. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. 
I was emailing, e emailing my friend um, back in the UK called Dan Hames. He's doing a PhD in Christology. I was asking him about um, this sermon and uh, he, he wrote something that I want to share with you. I think it's an encouragement to us that speaks to us of the incarnation. He says this, Jesus isn't secretly God in the disguise of humility, sacrifice and compassion. This is God on display. The veil isn't over his godness, but over our eyes because of sin. There is no more God-like essence behind Jesus to which he returns, having done the kind of gentle, loving stuff of the incarnation. That is the display and revelation of God. He didn't shed his humanity, nor his scars in the ascension. They are now part of the life of the immutable and perfect God. How marvellous, how wonderful. I stand amazed. Because of the incarnation, humanity is right now present in the throne room of God. Jesus remains the God-man, who we pray to, who we worship, who we adore, who we speak of. He remains God and man. He did that. That's the depth of his love, his commitment, his desire for us. So here's an implication for us. If Jesus is a God-man, if humanity is at the throne room of God, humanity is not actually something to escape from. We don't need to run away from our humanity. We're not saved from our humanity, but rather we are saved to be more fully human, to be more like Jesus Christ. We don't need to say, oh, when we mess up, oh, I'm only human. The incarnation dignifies our humanness, dignifies our bodies. Our bodies are not something we zip off and get rid of when that final day comes and we kind of float off into the atmosphere. No, Jesus' incarnation, death and resurrection results in the first fruits of a new creation, a life and body that's tangible, that's real. Our bodies are not something to get rid of, not something to be sacrificed for some other end, whether that's to be casually overworked into, into unhealth or, or, or uncared for with, with laziness. Our body isn't to be worshipped like at one end of the cultural spectrum, but also it's not to be despised at the other end simply because it doesn't work like it used to or look like it used to or isn't as productive as it used to be. Jesus in the incarnation, the boy Jesus dignifies our, our bodies more than, than we can know. But we're to step into that. What does it mean for us to step into our humanness and, and to see that as, as a positive rather than something to escape from? Also, Jesus' body grew. God the Son had to learn how to throw a ball, how to swing a hammer. Isn't that remarkable? But it's not just remarkable, it's, it's pivotal for us as well. It means that, that we can grow. If Jesus grew, then we can too, physically, spiritually, socially, intellectually, relationally. What would it look like for you to grow in wisdom and stature before God and men? What are the things that you wish you could just download into yourself where instead the challenge is actually to grow into 
What do you beat yourself up for, for not having mastered after all these years? Jesus took on the need and capability to grow. I think that dignifies that too. We can get out of this fixed mindset that's black and white, that's failure or success, that doesn't try new things or take the risks of looking like a beginner. But we can grow. We can find beauty and transformation rather than shame. We can be in process of change like those beautiful Vancouver uh, maple trees that go green to red almost before your eyes. Certain branches kind of go red while the other ones remain green. You can even pick up leaves where you can see it's half red and half green. It's, it's changing before your eyes. What if we saw the beauty in our change as, as we see in those leaves and those trees? We're allowed to grow. Will you allow yourself to grow? If it's good enough for the God-man, who knows what it's like, might it be good enough for you, for, for me, for our church? So the boy, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and in growing in his humanity, he learns and grows and understands our weaknesses. In Hebrews 4, 18, it says this, he now understands our weakness. He's not out of touch with our reality. He sympathizes with our weaknesses our pains, our frustrations, but all without sin. Will you trust him today? Would you allow the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, the boy Jesus, reassure, reassure you of this full salvation that's available for us and to convince you of the depth of this divine humility that the boy Jesus shows to us and brings to us? How can you not trust in this kind of saviour, a God-man like this? Let me finish with a quote from Ambrose, a fourth century bishop in Milan. He was a baby and a child so that you may become a perfect human. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you may be freed from the snares of, of death. He was in a manger so that you might be in the altar. He was on the earth that you may be in the stars. He had no other place in the inn so that you may have many mansions in the heavens. He, being rich, became poor for our sakes, that through his poverty you might become rich. Therefore his poverty is our inheritance and the Lord's weakness is our virtue. He chose to lack for himself that he may abound for us all. How marvellous, how wonderful we stand amazed.